Okay, um, so this was like two, we- two years ago at Unite Rome. Well, let me back up. I'm sorry. So first of all, for those of you who are new and maybe aren't aware of what's going on, we're doing a series right now called FAQs of Christianity. FAQ stands for Frequently Asked Question. And the way it works is you can get on our website, pvnstudents.org, and you can go to the suggestion box. And you can ask any question you want about Christianity or life or the Bible or Jesus, and it'll be totally anonymous. So you can ask whatever you want and say whatever you want. Please use that respectfully. Uh, And we'll filter those, and then we will answer those questions here in this series. And we've gotten several, so we're going to do a few more weeks of this series, um, and it's going to be great. So tonight, the question that we have, this was two years ago. It was at Unite Rome. It was after Unite Rome, and several people, and I'm going to get a couple people in here, but so Caleb McCurry comes up to me after Unite Rome, and he says, Ryan, if a Christian commits suicide, what happens to him or her? So that's a good question. And so I kind of gave what I thought. A week later, Sam Trailer comes up to me and says, Ryan, if a Christian commits suicide, what happens to that person? I was like, it's another, okay, interesting. And, and that was two years ago. And the only reason I remember that, because I've talked to you guys several times since then, is because I have been asked that question so many times in the last three or four years. And this is an area that's not really discussed a lot in the church. Uh, this is an area that I know I don't have the expertise to fully handle because it has to do with mental health. It has to do a lot with suffering and depression and all these different things and your upbringing and all kinds of factors factor into it. But it's something that I think we need to talk about. And yes, I'm aware that for the most part, I I don't think this issue has direct effect on a lot of you. And and that's not a bad thing. I'm not like, dang it. Like, that's that's okay. That's a good thing. Um, But, so why are we talking about it? Because, guys, we have to know more about what our Bible says. We have to understand more about what our Bible says on issues that are important. Does that make sense? Um, you guys heard about the kid, uh, I think it was at Pepperell who committed suicide last year. And there's every year, it feels like there's another one that happens and there's one that happened in Calhoun and, and a lot of celebrities it's been happening to of late. And so this is something that is kind of silently sweeping through parts of our culture and we need to be informed about it. So up here, but more than just informed about it, we need to find a peace and a comfort in God's word. Does that make sense? So I kind of want to reinforce you guys up here tonight on the podcast I'm pointing to my brain and in here, and now I'm pointing to my heart. Does that make sense? You follow me? So the exact question, and of course, the question came up online, and I was like, all right, we need to talk about this. The question is, and it's exactly the same, what ha- and I just want to quote it from the, the website, what happens if a Christian commits suicide? And so we're going to go through that a little bit, and if I have some time at the end, I'll answer another one of the questions that was asked, and then I'd like to hit on tattoos again as well with one thing that I left out because we ran out of time. So, But we'll just kind of see where time takes us. Cool? Makes sense? Uh, Open your Bibles to the book of Job. It's spelled like Job. Job chapter 1. So, okay, um, before we get into what happens where that tragedy takes place, we have to see what the Bible actually says about this issue, okay? Um, So here's the deal, and this is kind of the big, broad scope of what the Bible says. So I'm going to say this statement, and then I'm going to go back and give you some details, okay? No matter what your situation is, right, Um, no matter what your suffering is, um, mental disability that is a factor into this, depression, upbringing, no matter what your situation is, 
the, according to the Bible, your life is not yours to take. Your, your life is not even really yours, okay? Much less the Bible is not yours, uh, your life is not yours to take. And I don't get this from a bunch of like old, fat, white dudes who are writing the Bible and are like, rule number 11, that you can't commit suicide. Like, I get this, this idea that suicide is wrong, this idea that suicide, that, that your life is not yours to take. I get that from two men in the Bible who wanted to die. Okay? So if anybody's thinking about it, it's these guys. Does that make sense? It's not from so-and-so up in his tower with his robe and his beard. Suicide is wrong, and he's never had any suffering in his life. This is from two men in the Bible who wanted to die. So let's look at this. Aren't you glad we have popsicles first? Job chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. So before we read it, let me just kind of brief you on, because some of you probably have no idea who Job is, and that's okay. He's, he's not the first place that I would start in your scripture reading. But mostly because it's like 42 chapters. Job has seven sons and three daughters. Here's why this is important. The number seven in the Bible, number of days in the week, the number seven in the Bible has to do a lot with the number of completion or perfection. Seven years in the tribulation in Revelation. Um, seven is the number of completion or perfection. If you remember in the book of Ruth, uh, at the very end they say that Ruth is, having Ruth as a daughter is better than having seven sons. That's kind of random. Why would you say seven sons? Because seven sons would be the perfect amount of children, the perfect amount of men to, to continue the family line. Job has seven sons. It's a way of saying that they had the perfect family or the complete family. So his family life is set. It also tells us that Job is the wealthiest man in the east. In the east. Like the, over there, like the direction. The wealthiest man in the east is this. Let me give you a clue. Um, the Bible also tells us that Solomon was the wisest man in the East. And scholars, both secular and non-secular, Christian and non-Christian, they agree Solomon is one of the wisest people to have ever lived. So if Solomon is the wisest man in the East, and he's one of the wisest men to ever live, and Job is the richest man in the East, hey, he's one of the wealthiest people to ever live. This gives us a clue as to, so you got the perfect family, right? And it says that, the families would visit each other. The brothers and sisters would visit each brother on his day of the week. What does that mean? Seven brothers, right? Every day of the week, they had a different feast at the other brother's house. So they're all hanging out all the time. Job is wealthy. His life is about as close to perfect as you can get. And in an afternoon, he loses it all. Look at Job chapter 1, 14 through 19. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also uh, killed your servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, so keep in mind, this is like, like staccato, like a machine gun. Like this constant, These messengers are constantly cutting each other off, telling Job that this is happening. Verse 16. While he was still speaking, another also came in and said, The fire of God fell from heaven which is likely lightning, and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them all. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 17. While he was still speaking, another came in and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants watching them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking at the oldest brother's house on his day of the week. And behold, 
a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, which means it shook the entire house, and fell, and your children died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. In, in an instant, right, Job suffers loss of property, social standing. He loses his family, except for his wife, who comes at him with rage and anger and pain, which Proverbs tells us, a wife who's constantly in your face and, and hurting you is a horrible thing. And then Job later, which a lot of people don't know, later in the book, Job goes through these disgusting physical ailments, which we will not discuss on the recording. Disease is terrible, right? Think about suicide here. Disease is, suic- is, is terrible. I'm thinking about physician-assisted suicide. Breakups can be terrible. Loss is terrible, right? Losing things is terrible. Losing people is terrible. I'm not here to, to debate that at all. A lot of you know that my wife, Kristen, my wife, that's amazing, Kristen lost her biological dad, right, at a very young age. So loss is something that surrounds all of us, and loss is a terrible thing. But I humbly will say, I don't know that anyone alive, past or present, except for Christ on the cross, can tell me definitively that they have suffered more than Job. I'm not saying that you haven't suffered. I'm not coming at you like that. But my gosh, to lose it all like that. And look at Job chapter 2. So now we get into this second part. Job chapter 2, and he's lost so much. Look at verse 9. Here comes Job's wife. Then Job's wife says to him, Do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. So Job's wife, in the midst of all this suffering and pain, Job's wife comes to him. And a lot of commentators are not kind to Job. Um, It's either Augustine or Calvin. One of them says she is a messenger of Satan for coming to him and saying that he should do these things. If he will curse God's name, God will just strike him dead. And it'll all be over. And a lot of people throw a lot of hate at his wife for this, but keep in mind that she's just lost 10 kids too, right? So she comes to him and says this, and look at Job's response. Job chapter 2, verse 10. Job replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. So that's part of why we leave some hope for her. He doesn't say you're foolish. He says you're acting like a fool. Does that make sense? So she doesn't typically act like this. You're, at, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. So he says, you are talking like a foolish woman. The word fool here, you're talking like a foolish woman. The word fool here does not mean you're being a dummy. Excuse my language, right? Fool is a word, you're being a fool. Fool is a word here that means someone who doesn't worship Yahweh which is the Old Testament word for God. You're acting like someone who doesn't know God. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Job is not only saying that she's being foolish for suggesting suicide. He goes way deeper here. He's saying, by suggesting suicide, by suggesting that I just curse God and it's all over for me, By suggesting suicide, you're acting like someone who doesn't know God. 
You're acting like someone who doesn't trust God. Job has been in all this suffering. So put suicide in your head here. He's been through all this suffering and all this pain. And in Job's mind, if, you're, if you know God, to know God is to trust God. And there are a lot of you in here who have walked the aisle and prayed the prayer and been baptized, and that's fantastic. But in Job's mind, that's not what makes you a Christian. To know God is to trust God. Look at what he says. You're acting like someone who doesn't know God. And I'm suffering, so I I need to be trusting him. You're not trusting him. You act like you don't know him. How much do you really trust God when things go bad? Do you trust his hand? And let me flip it over. How much do you trust God when things go great? I would say it's way harder to trust God when things are going awesome than when things are going terribly. When things are going terribly, at least you run to him. But when things go well, prayer time gets a lot smaller. And the story's not over for Job. His, his situation gets a lot worse. He will lose more before the end. Um, do you guys know who C.S. Lewis is? Just flip it up there. Have you guys ever heard of the Chronicles of Narnia? Right? Cool. My nerds are with me. The Chronicles of Narnia is awesome. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote these books. You got Aslan the Lion, right? C.S. Lewis wrote these books. C.S. Lewis is also a famous what's called apologist, which means he defends the faith. Does that make sense? I defend the idea of creation versus evolution. I defend this. C.S. Lewis was this great apologist for the faith. And so he always stuck for God is awesome, God is great, here's God, he's awesome. And then C.S. Lewis's wife died. True story. C.S. Lewis got married much later in life, okay? Um, late 30s, kind of like Pastor Eric, our children's pastor. Eric got married late 30s. C.S. Lewis gets married later in his life, has an awesome four or five years, and then his wife dies of breast cancer, right? And C.S. Lewis begins to spiral and gets sad. And have you, do you guys know, I'm going to date myself, I apologize, what a blue book is, like what you write your essays in? Zero? Okay, yeah, thank you, Arthur. Um, blue books were this. If you had, and Gabby, if you had an exam, like a final exam, instead of writing it on the back of your paper, you would get what's called a blue book, which is just, it's this blue, it's literally a blue book, and it's full of notebook paper, right? That's what I used to do exams in high school and college. Uh, there's a lot of them in college. But anyway, C.S. Lewis had several of these around, and he begins to journal about the suffering that he's going through, right? Uh, and all the pain, and it was real. And he questioned God, and he, he doubted God, and he had all this anger towards God and depression. Well, he's so pleased with what he's written that he wants to publish it as a book. But he's been defending the faith for so long, he doesn't want anybody to see that he's doubting God. So he publishes the book under a different name. And he calls the book A Grief Observed. It's still out today. I mean, it's sitting on my shelf. It's a very short book. Wink, wink. You should check it out. And it's a very good read. But C.S. Lewis publishes it under a different name, and he is worldwide known, right? I mean, people, you guys still know who C.S. Lewis is. And everybody knows through the news that his wife has died. And so they all feel for the guy, right? Well, meanwhile, while they're going to bookstores, they see a book by this other guy about his wife dying called A Grief Observed. And they're like, man, this just happened to C.S. Lewis. I'm going to send him this book, and maybe it will help make him feel better. And so for like three years, C.S. Lewis got copies of his own book sent to him from all across, across the country by fans who thought it would make him feel better, right? 
When there is no release from suffering, when there is no end to pain, Job's wife says, end this for yourself. Commit suicide. And Job says, you saying that to me? You suggesting that suicide is an option? You sound like someone who doesn't know God. I will not end my life, Job says, because I know God. I trust God. And look back at verse 10 at the very end. In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job says, in my loss, in my suffering, I will not take the out. I will trust God in this suffering. I'll trust him in this storm, right? And then it says, in all of this, the narrator, so step out from Job, the narrator says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job says, I will not end my own life. I will trust God. And the Bible backs him up. The narrator says, and Job is right on the money here. In all of this, Job did not sin. Flip over to Job chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. So this is where it gets real, real. This is kind of Job's C.S. Lewis moment. Job chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. And Job is asking God to die. Job chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Yeah, the only reason you think the Bible is boring is because you never read it. Job is asking God to die. Here we go. Verse 8 of chapter 6. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. Well, what is it? Here it is. Verse 9. That it would please God to crush me and he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Job is an amazing place to go because in church, and and I do this too, and I don't think it's just church. It's a people thing. You do this at school all the time. You have a terrible, like you cry your eyes out in the car on the way to school and you get in and everything is blessed, right? And you're having a good day, school's boring, blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, when you get back in your car, you're miserable. You put on the face. We do this in church all the time, right? Job is a great example that it's okay to not do that, right? It's okay to be real about how you're feeling. It's the first step to getting better. But everybody will say, see, God, Job just asked God to kill him. Boom, Job is suicidal. See, he literally asked God to kill him. He's suicidal. Not so fast. Did you see this phrase at the very end of verse 9? That he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Cut me off. All right, there you go. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Cut me off is a Hebrew word picture. A word picture is like if I said, boy, you just opened up a whole can of worms right there. Everyone in here knows like we're not going fishing, like and we're getting our worms ready. To, does that make sense? It's a word picture. What that makes you think, oh man, he just really you know, did something bad. He opened a, a whole can of worms. When Job says cut me off, it's the same thing. It's a word picture. And in Hebrew, this phrase for cut me off is when someone is sewing and they're finished sewing and they cut the thread to be done. Does that make sense? Like if you sewed a shirt, you can't just have the thread, like hey, you got to cut it to be finished. That's what Job is saying. Of all the phrases that Job chooses to use for his own death, he uses this one. This shows that in Job's situation, in his suffering, in his pain, Job sees himself as a thread in God's hands. Can threads cut themselves? Does Job want his suffering to end? Sure he does. But he realizes that it is not his place 
to do that. And he asks God. In all his suffering, Job refuses to take his own life. He says, God will end my life when he's ready to. But while I'm here, I'll trust God in my pain. I will trust God in my suffering. Now, flip over to 1 Kings. More on Job in a minute. Flip, I know you're in 1 Kings all the time. I'm sorry. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. So let me sum up what's happening. This is the prophet Elijah, okay? Elijah has had this mountaintop moment. Elijah's been to beach camp, right? He's had this like mountaintop moment. He's rocking. Passion band is there. He loves it. And now he gets slammed, which is what happens to us every time we have that mountaintop experience. He gets slammed. This queen completely destroys his ministry. Everything he's doing is failing now. He runs to the forest to die. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. While Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. He says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Verse 5. Then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Okay, so I need you to follow this for just a quick second. We so often in church love the spiritual stuff. Like if you're going through it, you need to pray, you need to listen to oceans, you need to pray again, you need to listen to reckless love now, and then you just like, you got to spiritually, you got to get there, right? you got to get better. Meanwhile, you've all missed the fact that there's a Dairy Queen two miles from your house, and you could have a peanut butter cookie dough blizzard and just turn up for like 10 minutes and enjoy that life, right? Does that make sense? Here's why I bring, what Dairy Queen is not in the text, Ryan, what are we doing? Did you notice that Elijah is suicidal-ish? Elijah is miserable. He wants to die. He's not suicidal because he's asking God to do it, which we'll get to in a minute. He wants to die. And the angel of the Lord, like, come on. If you saw an angel, you know cherubim and seraphim? You've heard this before, angels. Seraph is the Hebrew word to burn. Do you know what a seraphim looks like then? There are no wings in halo. This is terrifying. And this angel of the Lord comes to him and gives him food. What, what is happening? Shouldn't you help his soul? It is helping his soul by getting to it through meeting his physical needs. When we're miserable, we don't eat. When we're miserable, we don't hang out with people. When we're miserable, we don't want to go to fun things. Because she used to like fun things and we had fun. It was like you don't, you miss it, but you cut yourself off. You are cutting off your soul a chance to get better. Don't neglect the physical stuff. Get yourself a blizzard, man. Go to Target in Cartersville and just let loose under your parents' supervision and get you some good stuff. This is, this is, and again, this is the Bible. He feeds him, he meets his physical needs. Don't sit in your room listening to whatever. Going crazy, getting sinking deeper into your sadness. Because I promise you, as soon as you're sad, you're going to forget everything I'm talking about. But you're not going to forget that I mentioned Dairy Queen in the middle of a sermon. So I'm actually helping you. Do that. Force yourself, right? Go. Get out and enjoy. Meet the physical part of your needs. 
Elijah wants to die, right? He says it twice. Take my life. He prays that he will die, and yet he doesn't take his own life. We find out later that Elijah is close to the mountains. He doesn't go up the mountain and jump off. Job and Elijah want their suffering to end, but even in their suffering, they are not suicidal. They are asking God to end it. Suicide is different. Suicide is telling God. Job and Elijah have asked God to end their suffering. Suicide is telling God, I'm going to take my own life. So is it okay to ask God to kill you then? It's also worth noting that when Elijah asks God to kill him, the Lord comforts him, right? Brings him the angel, brings him the bread and water, gets him back to sleep so that he'll stop wanting that. If suicide was okay for Elijah, then who better to assist him with it than God? But God sends an angel to feed him, to prolong his life. If anything, this is an indictment against suicide. Elijah wants to die, and God is saying, this is not okay, let me help you. Job and Elijah both understood that even in their ancient civilization, so just so you know, we have no timeline for when Job takes place. Nobody knows when Job is. But we have a strong guess that Job took place around the time of Genesis. Early Genesis. I'm talking Tower of Babel. I'm talking Job is probably older than Abraham. I'm talking Cain and Abel time frame. This is how ancient Job... I mean, think about it. There's nothing. Job has nothing. And yet even in that ancient civilization, they know that suicide is not the way. They know that you cannot take your life because in their eyes, here it is, this is the big one, you cannot take, look at me, you cannot take what is not yours. Suicide of any kind is not just sinful, it's unbiblical. Suicide says, I'm taking my own life, right? Now let me humbly ask you, where in the Bible do you read that your life belongs to you? Because when I read the Bible, I see Psalm 24, which says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That includes you and me. When I look at it, I read Psalm 139 that says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. It's not just chromosomes happening in there. I mean, it is, but who's, who's doing that? God is. And then the last one, I read Psalm 31, which says, My time is in your hands. My time is in your hands. The Bible seems to, su- seems to suggest sorry, that you and God are not like, all right, God, I'm going to do this. What do you think? I'm going to do this. What do you think? The Bible seems to suggest that God is the one who's in ownership. And you can't take something from him. God did those things. God designed you. And you know the verse. God knows every hair on your head. Have you heard about that? God knows every hair on your head. Listen, you don't even know all the hairs on your head, right? Can I tell you, this was like three weeks ago. Uh, My wife, Kristen, do you know where I found one of her hairs? No joke. In the fold of my laptop. There's like this gold. Kristen doesn't even use my laptop, okay? And there's like a, and I called her and I was like, what is it? Why is this here? Like, why is this in? And she was like, I don't know. Like, I didn't realize it was missing. Like, what do you want from me? But listen, God knew 
that it was missing. God knows that that hair is missing. Listen, you don't know your body the way God does. You don't know this world the way God does. Do you know why? Because it doesn't belong to you. Because the, God made the world. Of course it doesn't belong to you. And do you know why you don't know your own body like God does? Because it doesn't belong to you. God made it. Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 6 both say, Your life is not your own. Well, it should be mine. I feel like it's mine. Really? You who, when you lose your keys, you have a panic attack? You who dropped your phone in the toilet again? You really want to be the one that my life is mine. You really think you're equipped to drive your own life. Listen, you weren't designed to lead your own life. You were designed to worship. You were designed to follow. You were designed to fall in love with God. You trying to lead your own life is like playing playing baseball with a golf club. You can kind of get by, but you're going to look ridiculous, and you're never going to function the way you should. But when we worship God, it's like playing golf with a golf club. It's still really difficult, right? But it's going the way it's supposed to go. Let's do some real life example. And you can look this up anywhere. Back in 2014, a woman named Brittany Maynard, M-A-Y-N-A-R-D, had an inoperable brain tumor and was thinking about taking her own life medically through what's called physician-assisted suicide, which is also not a good thing. If you want to know more about that, we preached about it in the college service, so just PV and college on the podcast. Brittany Maynard has an inoperable brain tumor and wants to take her own life, and many Christians pleaded with her not to do this, and she did anyway. But before she died, one who begged her not to was a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. Do you know who that is? Slip your hand up if you know who that is. Okay, a few of you. All, you're all homeschooled too, which I find interesting. Joni Erickson Tata is a woman who is a quadriplegic, which we'll talk about in a minute, and she's, she has a beautiful voice, and she paints, but she paints through holding the paintbrush in her mouth, and they're beautiful. This is Joni Erickson Tata. When Joni was 18 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged the depth of the water. She suffered a fracture in her vertebrae and became permanently paralyzed from the shoulders down. Joni lost it all in an instant, like Job. In 2010, Joni was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. After cancer and chemotherapy, she was cancer-free but she was still a quadriplegic. If anyone has the right to pull the plug, it's Joni Erickson Tata. Listen to what she says to Brittany Maynard. You can look this up anywhere. This is amazing. If I could park my wheelchair next to Brittany, I would tell her how the love of Jesus has sustained me through my pain quadriplegia, and my cancer. I don't want Brittany to wake up on the other side of her tombstone only to face a dark, grim existence without joy, that is, without God. 
There's only one person who has transformed the landscape of life after death, and that is Jesus, the one who conquered the grave, opening the path to life eternal. Brittany, taking your life will only provide a temporary break. It is not the answer for the most important question in your life. The love of Jesus sustained me. Don't, I'm 28. I'm in great shape, and I have a hot wife. I'm doing fine, Right? Don't listen to me saying suicide is bad. You shouldn't, this is not. Joni Erickson Tata can't go to the bathroom on her own. She can't hold hands with her relatives. And she says suicide is not the way. Lastly, let's look at the gospel. If someone commits suicide, here it is. So let's answer the question. I've talked too much. If someone commits suicide, do they automatically go to hell? Because their last act, according to the Bible, is sinful. Let me give you an example. If I am angry with Kristen, and, I, and, and she didn't even do it, right? Maybe she's told me the truth about something that I need to hear, and like you guys, I don't say, wow, babe, thanks for pointing that out. I immediately go crazy and just yelling at her, hitting low blows, making her feel terrible, making her cry, and I, am, I just can't even deal with it. And so I get in my car and I just fly out of there, right? And I'm so mad at her for telling me the truth. So I'm, I'm totally in sin at this moment, right? And I'm so angry at her that I don't even see the stop sign and I get hit head on and I'm gone. I died in the middle of my sinful anger. And the act before that was yelling at my wife for something good that she did. Do I go to hell? No. Do those who commit, do, do, if a Christian commits suicide, do they go to hell? No. Because the last act of your life will never outrank the last act of Jesus' life, which is the cross. You are still covered and you are still safe if you know him before the end. Job tells God, let me die. Elijah tells God, let me die. And God sends an angel to comfort him, gives him food. Jonah tells God in chapter 4, let me die. And God teaches Jonah a lesson through raising up a tree. And then there's David in Psalm 39. Listen to David in Psalm, you need to, I would write this one down. Psalm 39 towards the end. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a stranger. Look away from me so that I can enjoy my life before I die and am no more. David is at rock bottom. He yells at God, just leave me alone so that I can have some peace before I die. This is wrong. This is sinful. This is unbiblical. And yet it's in the Bible. Let me talk to those of you who are suffering for a second. Why would God leave this in the Bible? David's his boy, and he is completely wrong on this. So why would God leave this in the Bible? Because when I say that he knows you better than you know yourself, do you know what that means? It means that he understands. He understands when our feelings so overwhelm us that we become desperate and say incorrect things. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. He understands it so much that he puts an example of it in the Bible through David. God is saying, 
it's safe for you to pray like this with me. Those who in their lives miss the mercy of God in an incredible way. Look at Jonah and Job and Elijah, how God intervenes in their desire for death and puts a stop to it. God never wants you to end your own life. Look at me, one more time. God never wants you to end your own life. Look at how he interacts with these people. In fact, he sent his son to save your life. If God loves your soul enough to send his son to save it, then we blaspheme God when we take it. We ignore Jesus on the cross dying for us to save our life. Because the only reason he died was to save us. We are saying that we are more important than God's love. The gospel is the key to understanding that suicide is wrong. A God who would send his son for our life, a God who would send his son to save our lives would shudder in anger if we took our lives instead. And yet, suicide is still covered by the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus became suicide. And all God's wrath that was going to go towards suicide poured out on Jesus instead so that you could be free. God died so that you could live, know his love, and trust him in pain. Do the physical stuff to to be okay in your pain. Seek the spiritual to get help in your pain.